Today is May 24th. It's 2015. Our message today is called The Second War. The Second War. I would like to make one other announcement that didn't make it into the other announcements. Matthew and Cassidy have been married 17 years now. I got to say, I was sincerely happy when I stopped waking up on Saturday morning and finding Matt on my couch. God had sent Cassidy into his life. And uh, it's made all the difference. Aren't they a beautiful couple? In this church, we believe that one man marries one woman, loves her his whole life, and is the better for it. In this church, we do not believe that eternal covenants are optional or easily broken. In this church, we believe that the way that we act towards our fellow man is a reflection about how we feel about the living God. I want to encourage you to be faithful to your commitments, to be faithful to your God. Amen? Amen. Pastor Sutherland preached an excellent message. He walked us through the life of Manoah, Samson's father, and his mother, who is never named in the Scripture. He walked us through the life of Gideon and Samuel and several others. These were all people that struggled in obscurity, but were given clarity in the midst of their obscurity. And they displayed faith that moved mountains. That message was called Fighting Through Obscurity. I'd encourage you to listen to it. If you heard it once, it'd do good to hear it again. So many times in our lives, God gives us messages. We're moved by them. And then as the week goes by, we don't contemplate them. We're like spoiled children being fed at an all-you-can-eat buffet, not appreciating the scarcity of the food in other parts of the world. And I would encourage you to treasure these things. There was a message last Sunday called the Tanakh become flesh, not a run of the mill average sermon, not the kind of thing that you can find just anywhere. If you didn't hear it, you might want to download it as well. Today, preachers all across America, because it is Memorial Day, will be discussing certain themes. I want to get those themes out of the way. (laughs) And I want to get them out of the way and affirm that I Absolutely honor the men and women that have died in wars, foreign or otherwise, fighting for causes of freedom. Ever since I read about a little Jewish boy who picked up five smooth stones and went out to face just odds that were overwhelming, having confidence in the Lord, I admire the courage that soldiers have. Ever since I read about Joshua, a military commander and a priestly figure before God, telling the people of Israel, then you will know the way to go since you've never been this way before. You're going to have to follow the ark. I admired the way that soldiers follow orders and please their commanding officer even when they don't understand. When I looked at the way that Joshua told the people, when you cross the Jordan that's at flood stage, when the priest's feet hit the water and they're carrying the ark of the covenant, the water will split. Who's ever heard of such a thing? And after the entire nation crosses through on dry ground with the priest standing in the middle, I want you to take stones from the middle of the river and I want you to set them up on the other side so that when your children ask, ever since I heard that, I've loved the way that soldiers have won battles in previous years that still inspire us today. I think it's worth asking. Ever since I found out that a man who is faithful to Almighty God, Isaiah 56, 3 I'm sorry, 56, 5 says this, To them I will give within my walls, my temple and its walls, a memorial name, one better than sons or daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. Ever since I read those words, how can you not admire soldiers? Today is not Veterans Day, it's Memorial Day. So it's not a day for honoring all soldiers, it's a day for honoring the sacrifices of those that went before us. And God is not an American. So on Valentine's Day, it's very rare that I preach a Valentine's Day message. On Memorial Day, it's very rare that I preach a Memorial Day message because the King of Kings is not American. But every once in a while, it so happens that even a pagan nation like ours stumbles into a godly truth that is worth celebrating and the day is worth celebrating and it happens to coincide exactly with what our king wants to tell us today. I want to tell you quickly that on a day like this, we'll talk about things like the Revolutionary War. 
Preachers all over America are going to discuss soldiers and the, the men who died in those conflicts. Some of them are going to simply be content to cover patriotic themes and then call it a day. Some of them are going to make analogies between the birth of America and Christian rebirth. I want to go a slightly different route. And I think we ought to begin with a quote that comes to us from our nation's capital. This church helped to plant submission ministries. It's in Gainesville, Virginia, which is about 40 minutes from Washington, D.C. It is our belief that God has planted a star there that is going to create other stars, something that's going to explode and touch the nations of the world from our nation's capital. Brother Zeke Lamb, the pastor there, sent me this yesterday evening. Alexis de Tocqueville was sent to the United States to find out why there was so little crime and so few prisons in America as opposed to its European counterparts. Alexis lived in 1805 to 1859. He was a French author. After several years of study, he wrote in his celebrated book called The Democracy of the United States, written in 1840, the following passage. I sought for the greatness and genius of America in her commodious harbors and her ample rivers. And it was not there. In her fertile fields and boundless forests, and it was not there. In her rich mines and her vast world commerce, and it was not there. In her democratic congress and her matchless constitution, and it was not there. Not until I went into the churches of America and heard her pulpits aflame with the righteousness of God did I understand that the secret of her genius and power, America is great because she is good. And if America ever ceases to be good, she will cease to be great. Friends, we've lived to see these times. We've lived to see our pulpits to become installations for the weak-willed, man-pleasers and God-haters. We've lived to see America decline from greatness. And it occurs to me that it's not the same thing to win your independence as to walk in that freedom. It's not the same thing to be saved as to walk as a saved man. We have emphasized an event. We have emphasized one moment in time to the exclusion of all others, but a great event, an amazing moment, an awesome period in time can all be rendered insignificant by the life that follows that moment. There are a couple people that brought me into this world. That's an amazing moment. Life came out of that. They were both confused drug addicts. One of them was stoned on the day that I was born. And yet, if that day changes forever, and there's repentance, all that baby ever knows is God they love, holiness, righteousness, and good examples. That moment can change everything if the life that follows that moment is a righteous one. If, however... After that moment, what you see is more of the same. Then it was one good moment in time that is drowned in a sea of disobedience. This is analogous to many Christian walks. One good moment in time. One moment at an altar where a heart was pricked. One moment where we said, Lord, I'll give you our all. But if it is drowned in a sea of disobedience, let me ask you how significant was that moment. Being reborn and living as a Christian are two equally important but totally distinct topics. It's not enough to be born. There must be a life that also follows it. It is not enough to be an infant. You must also mature into adulthood. How many of you want to grow in Christ? Let us not settle for eating a cracker and that being the beginning and the end of our Christian experience. Let us not settle for repeating a prayer that someone else wrote that is not even found in a Bible, being the beginning and end of your Christian experience. Let us not go into the water a dry sinner and come out a wet sinner and that be the beginning and end of our Christian experience. 
In this nation today, people will look at a flag. They'll think of flags draped over coffins, a symbol of what these people died for. But to gain your freedom and to gain your independence is not the same as walking in freedom and walking in independence. What happens when the ideals that you begin your Christian walk on are no longer the rule of your life? The same thing that happens to a nation when its founding document becomes flexible. The same thing that happens to a nation when its freedom becomes an excuse to sin. The same thing that has happened, he or she is no longer great. Could you turn with me to Deuteronomy 18? We're going to start in verse 9, but what we're aiming for is Deuteronomy 18, 12. Not an entirely insignificant number. In Deuteronomy 18, beginning with the ninth verse. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not learn to imitate the detestable nations, the detestable ways of the nations there. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices his son or daughter in the fire, who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, or engages in witchcraft, or casts spells, or who is a medium or a spiritist who consults the dead. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. Say detestable. That is an ugly word. Something that the Lord's soul reviles from. And because of these detestable, say it again, detestable. Detestable practices, the Lord your God will drive out those nations before you. You must be blameless before the Lord your God. This is an interesting topic given that Israel was birthed as a nation. They passed from death to life leaving Egypt and crossing the Red Sea. They were not a people, they were simply a family. But when God called them out of Egypt, they who were no people became a nation in a single day. They were leaving the cover of darkness and death and entering into a kingdom that would be ruled by immortal light. They were born again, so to speak. God adopts them as his children. And yet in Deuteronomy 18, we hear that if you begin doing these things, you become detestable to the Lord. It turns out that being born adopted of God is not the same thing as walking as a child of God. Perhaps in our time, we've emphasized positional righteousness to the peril of actually being righteous. Because I stand in Christ, I'm hidden in Christ. Christ has credited me with his righteousness. All true. But that does not alleviate our need to actually walk in righteousness. Let me ask you. If a man goes out and murders after his conversion, if that man then commits adultery, and that man molests your children, how sincere will you call his conversion? How much weight will you put on that event? Oh, we scapegoat it. We say, no, he never had that event. But the Bible is full of examples of men who had a changed nature. King Saul is changed into a different man. The problem is after his change, fear dominated him, insecurity dominated him, and disobedience defined him. So he finished his life ashamed. Church, it's our desire to see reformation in our nation. But as Tolstoy once said, everyone dreams of changing the world. No one starts with themselves. If we want to see reformation in our nation, we have to first have reformation in our own hearts, in our own churches. We're pretty sure that the other churches are doing it wrong, but what about us? It's been said that everyone hates the other person's sin and loves their own. 
On this Memorial Day, let's not just think of those who died in foreign wars. How about those that died fighting the good fight of faith? How about those that were not only saved, they moved on to be sanctified. They were not only declared righteous, they fought hand, tooth, and nail, agonizing battles every day. First with their flesh and then with the powers of hell. To walk as an example to us. They most times did not receive the things that we've received. And they were faithful anyway. Friends, let us not just be inspired to have a three-day weekend. Maybe have some barbecue and beer. Perhaps this could be a time we consider that to begin a thing is not the same thing as finishing it. By the way, what does it mean, all the gains that this nation made in Iraq, liberating women so that they could vote? Saving children from child bride practices. Giving people who had never had the opportunity to consider something outside of satanic Islam the opportunity to find life, peace, joy, happiness. What does it say when those same towns are now overrun with Islamic satanic terrorists? What does it say about the blood that was spilt to liberate those towns? It's dishonoring. It'd be a little bit like if Germany reoccupied all of Europe again and we were like, oh well. It's ridiculous. And I'm concerned with the geopolitical situation, but not nearly so concerned as what begins with us. What is it like when the King of Kings has died to set us free, but we do not walk in the freedom that that death purchased? In Exodus 3, 10 through 12, you see Israel crossing the Red Sea and becoming a new nation. In Exodus 19, turn there. Exodus 19, pick up with me in verse 5. Say there when you were there. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant... Then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. The constitution of Israel was given from Mount Sinai. It was written by God on stone. That very same constitution that we now call the Tanakh, or the Torah, the law, or the Older Testament, if you prefer. The people were given a chance to ratify it or not. Just like all constitutions. In Exodus 24, in verse 7, you'll find these words, and it's a wonderful mnemonic, because we have Exodus 24 hours a day, seven days a week, Exodus 24, 7. Then he took the book of the covenant, the constitution of Israel, and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said we will obey. When God formed a nation, he made them new. A new nation unlike any nation on the planet. He gave them heavenly instruction that would be their rule and governance for life. And he gave them a chance to respond to it. They ratified it publicly. The whole nation said, we will do everything you commanded. We will obey. The major obstacle for Israel was not their supernatural independence day. Leaving Egypt at the Passover. It was not receiving the life-giving Torah that is their constitution. After all, God did all the hard work, didn't he? It was when the newly formed nation had to act as a nation for the very first time, preserving its God-given character and remaining true to who and what they were called to be, that the crisis comes. When they cross the Jordan, will they be the conqueror that drives out wicked practices and establishes the kingdom of God? Or will they simply be assimilated into the nations? Friends, you've been born again if in fact you have. Those of you that have been born again have been given a heavenly constitution, the rules for your life, the guidance for your life. You accepted it 
on the day that you called him Jesus, the Lord. But that's not really the test. We act as if that is the end and the beginning. Do you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior? We say things like that all of the time. Well, praise God if you accept Jesus as your Savior. The question is, the life that follows, will it be acceptable to Him? Church, Israel faced challenges when they crossed into the new land. The power of the peoples around them, the power of the fears within them, and the satanic powers at large worked constantly to conform them to the image of the nations around. Is it really different in the Christian world today? Does not Romans 12 tell us, be ye not conform, do not be conformed to the image of this world. Rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Have you ever read Luke 16, 16? It's perplexing. It says the kingdom of God is advancing and forceful men force their way into it. You go, wait, what do you mean forceful? My image of a Christian man is somebody stroking a lamb. The reality, spiritually speaking, is outside forces are acting on you all of the time, trying to conform you to the image of the world, just like the nations around you. They're trying to assimilate you. And it takes a forceful man to push back, to look and say, I will not be moved. Threaten me, intimidate me, try to starve me, even kill me. My king is worth it. In other words, to live like a man who is making good on the promise to actually give his life for the Lord. When we do these things, oh, we leave memorial stones everywhere we go. Are you not inspired when you read that Paul suffered under the rod but did not bend? When Paul was shipwrecked but did not break? When Paul's head was cut off but he maintained the faith? Are you not inspired? Well, then Christian soldiers ought to leave Memorial Days behind us as well. In my household, our favorite literature are those novels that are a couple hundred pages about the men who dared all crossed oceans for the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I care very little for today's theologians and not a very much more for today's popular pastors, but I love those men that actually risk something for the gospel rather than building for themselves their own kingdoms based on lavish wealth. I'd like to just encourage you that there are two wars that we always face. And it was the same way in our country. We focus on the Revolutionary War. That was from 1775 to 1783. It gave us birth as a nation. And the years that followed, a constitution was written. But less than 30 years later, there was a second war that shaped our nation's psyche. It is the second war that defines the believer, the nation, and the outcome. Salvation is a beginning, but what you do after salvation is what defines you. Assimilation is the second enemy. It is the greatest battle. Have you ever wondered why when you travel to India, when you travel to Africa, if you travel to Europe, everybody drinks tea? But in this country, it's hard to find people to drink tea. We wake up and get a cup of... Why? There are things that America did for no other reason than to be stiff-necked and say, we're not British. That's a God's honest truth. Why do you travel to places and the steering wheel is on one side of the car, but here it's on the other? Why do they drive on one side of the road and we drive on the other? We can argue all day long about carriages and stagecoaches, but I know why. It was America's way to say, hey, we are not part of your empire. Christians, what do we do that gives us the chance to look right in the face of the world and go, oh, I know it'd be easier. (laughs) I know you'd like me more. You'd find me more acceptable. But I'm not a part of your empire. See, the first war won our freedom, but what good would the Revolutionary War be if 30 years later we were simply occupied by the British? Now, I know that we have representatives of the United Kingdom here today. I'm obviously using 
geopolitical entities as analogies. The analogies are imperfect. The history behind us is a compound word. It is His story. If you look into your history book, you will find Jesus' story on every page. And the story that I see in these events says, you not only have to fight to get free, there's a bigger fight to stay free in the name of Jesus. Have you ever seen someone healed but have to fight to maintain that healing? Have you ever seen somebody born again and that's when the real struggle began? You thought it was hard to get the job. Now you find out how hard it is to keep it. In 1812, the United States began a three-year war. It was with Britain. Their navy outnumbered our navy 15 to 1 in numbers of ships. The United States population in 1812 was about the city of Houston. It was 7.5 million people in the entirety of the U.S. At that time, Mississippi River was our western border. We actually invaded Canada for a brief time and lost. Who loses to the Canadians? (laughs) There was an event called the Chesapeake Affair. Now, when I say that because of modern media, you probably immediately think a president did something wrong. This is a different kind of affair. It means an event. A British ship called the Leopard and an American ship called the Chesapeake experienced a difference of perspective. The American ship, the Chesapeake, had on it sailors whose fathers had been British, whose grandfathers had been British. In fact, they came from the Royal Navy family, except now they no longer considered themselves British. They were American, or in the South, American. So the British looked upon the Chesapeake and said, those those sailors really belong to us. But the sailors on the Chesapeake said, we've revolted and we've won. We are free men. And there was a fight. See, Britain lost the war, the Revolutionary War. But that didn't mean they accepted the outcome. I want you to understand Satan is defeated, but that does not mean he's accepted the outcome. You have won your freedom, but that does not mean that he doesn't think you belong to him. During those days, one of the most pressing issues was that the nation... Of Britain, England did not recognize any British citizen's right to denationalize. Understand what I'm saying? Born British, die British. So how do you think they viewed the Revolutionary War? Those are our poor lost children over there and they're British and they don't know it. There's insight into this. This is how the kingdom of the world views you. You had a supernatural rebirth. You're just a confused soul. You don't really know who you are. You'll come back around eventually. Mr. Worldly Wise Man is there telling you not to be so serious. I mean, after all, we're Christians too. Don't go getting all radical on us. Give it enough time. You'll be back to your old ways. Have you not heard these voices? Wait, I'm sorry. I already put you to sleep. Have you not heard these voices? I'm worried for you if you can't admit to having heard these voices. That might mean that they're coming from you. The British captains began doing something. They were involved in a battle with a short little French guy named Napoleon. So they viewed the American colonies as still belonging to them. And when they ran into to American sailors, they said, Look, your skills, your pedigree, your heritage, you got it from us. So we're going to impress you into our service. We're going to Shanghai you. That's probably not even politically correct anymore to say, is it? It's funny how we revise history. You ever wonder why we can't have Washington Redskins, but you can have Tomahawk cruise missiles? (laughs) Apache helicopters? I'm going to say some things today about American Indians, and Matthew will be grossly offended, and I don't care. The British ships thought that they could force 
American soldiers into impressment, just like the devil thinks he can force you back into his service. When we're thinking about that, there's a second issue. Because Britain was fighting with France. They wanted to restrict trade of America with France. There was a trade hindrance. In fact, in the Atlantic Ocean, the British lined up their ships so that there was an embargo. American ships looked like seals trying to run the gauntlet with the great white sharks off the coast of South Africa. What Britain knew is that if France and America continued to trade, they might be strong. The trade hindrance reminds me of a hindrance to fellowship. The devil knows that if he can isolate you, he might be able to beat you. But if you continue to exchange godly revelations, if you continue to exchange encouragement, if you rebuke and correct and love and train each other, then he may not be able to stand against you. Apparently what Ecclesiastes says is true, two are better than one. So the British sought to hinder trade. That was very difficult for America. We were a fledgling nation. Just like if you cut off a new Christian from fellowship, you almost guarantee their death. Most of all, the British began a kind of strange guerrilla warfare in a time when that was not an acceptable practice. They wanted to control the Mississippi River, the western boundary of the United States, and so they incited the indigenous Indian population to up rise against the American colonies. This is not the time to discuss manifest destiny and moral equivalence. I simply want to draw for you a conclusion. When the enemy cannot blockade your fellowship, when the enemy cannot force you into his service, then he tries to cause the native you to rise up inside of you. James discusses it this way. He said, your own desires rage in you. Paul says it this way. In his mind, he's subject to the law of Christ. But there's another law waging war against the law of Christ. The battle within is analogous to the Indian uprising. Have you ever considered that maybe the reason you're being tempted with the things you're being tempted with is you've fallen to them before? Jesus fishes for men. But apparently the devil does too. What catches your eye? When you're driving down the road, what causes you to take your eyes off the road? Come on, man. God gave you a neck. You need to learn to use it. You can repent just by doing this. When he finds something that catches your eye, he begins to lure you. That's like having the Indian uprising. And as they get strong... Then he starts to say, you can do this rather than that. Don't go fellowship tonight. Let's watch a movie. And then before long, he's pressing you into a service. We have a nation full of compromising Christians that are really no Christians at all. I don't want to be one of them. I feel the call of God saying we can go higher. That we were born for such a time as this. That the reason that it's darkening around us is because we're supposed to shine like the brightness of the heavens. I am excited that we live in a time when affluence may be stripped from us and we get to persevere in the name of Christ because that's how you build a memorial. As believers, we all face the same attacks. Let us look at impressments in Romans 6. Are you there? Are you going there? Are you alive? This is a church that I'm very proud of. When you love someone, you tell them the truth. And it's not very loving to not tell the truth. As I see it, the raw truth of the situation is that if we compare ourselves with those around us, we look pretty good. But when we compare ourselves to Christ, we fall woefully short. We're going to need His Spirit. We're going to need His Word. We're going to need to renew our commitment not to an experience that happened a long time ago, but to a lifetime of sacrificial living in His name. It's not enough, saints, to say, I was saved back then. 
That is not enough. It's like saying, I planted an apple seed in the corner of that field. If there is no apple tree, I'm going to say it's suspect whether you did it or not. I am somewhat concerned. You may have seen this. Little bit worried that the thing that is inoculating us from being born again is that we are convinced we've already been born again. I read yesterday that in a Gallup poll across a broad section of the United States with thousands of recipients, when asked what percentage of the population is the gay, lesbian, I don't know, there's more initials now, it seems to get into men and dolphins. I have no idea what all those mean. What percentage of the population is it? You know what the majority response was? 25%. There is no poll ever done that places the number above 4%. And most estimates are closer to 2%. But the Christians have been so silent and the immoral have been so loud that what was considered deviant behavior is now accepted into the mainstream. The way that that happens is when you think, well, it's common, it's one in four people. Could that many people be wrong? Not realizing it's actually more like two in every hundred. But I'm going to tell you right up front, I admire the gay and lesbian community. What they do is sick, it's disgusting, and I still admire them. Because they're gay and lesbian full time. If the Christian community was Christian full time instead of just on Sunday and Wednesday, then we would have seen this country revived a long time ago. If we were as committed to our cause as they are to theirs, I'm going to also just go out on a limb and say because we were born sinners, it's possible to be born gay, possible to be born a lesbian. We're born sinners. And yet when you are born again, activists make the very best Christians. They know what it is to show up when it's raining. They know what it is to endure scorn. They know what it is to hurt for something. So I'm not against it. I love to see homosexual people born again and put in godly lifestyles. And it happens all of the time. The power of the gospel changes lives. But I've digressed. In Romans 6, on the, on the subject of impressments, starting in verse 1, What shall I say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. This word, if you translate the Greek into Hebrew, is hal halal. It literally means hell no. Heaven forbid. In fact, one Hebrew lexicon says that the Greek cognate trans, uh, that, that is hal halal in Hebrew is the strongest term of negation available to a Hebrew speaker. In other words, there is no stronger way that he could possibly have said, by no means. So much so that the English translators don't really know what to do with it. Some of you with another translation, it may say, heaven forbid, which just is like June Cleaver, right? (laughs) We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with Him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. What was the purpose of being reborn? To live a new life. The woman who was saved from death, they did not throw stones at her because Jesus dismissed them. He told her, now go, leave your life of... Why didn't she simply say, well, since you saved me, it really doesn't matter. But I've tried, Eric. I just, I just can't. The same one who gives you your Independence Day will fuel the revolution every day of your life. I stand before you, six foot tall, two hundred and fifty-ish pounds of weakness, but I'm also filled with the spirit of power of the Almighty God. There's a lot of dirt here, but I'm not just dirt. The supernatural wind of heaven has filled my lungs. Oh, church, don't tell me what I can't do. 
in the name of Jesus, I get to do everything he's told me to do and all the power of hell can't stop me. I pray that you be of like mind. By the time you get all the way down to the 12th verse, he says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Don't allow the enemy to impress you. It's a fancy word to say, make you a slave. While you're declaring your freedom, don't let him make you a slave to sin. Church, this would be a good time for a gut check. I know I rarely lob you softballs. If you want to go hear that you're a champion and a wonderful human being and Oprah loves you, there's something that approximates six flags or a church or something like that here in town you can go to. This is a chance for you to examine your life and ask a question. Is there habitual sin in my life? For as long as I can remember, does this one thing keep popping back up? You need to declare war on that. You need to fall on your knees and say, Mighty God, you can break this, and I've been unable to. Take me back to the cross that it might be crucified in me. And if your first response is, There's nothing like that in my life, I'm going to challenge your response. You are probably self-righteous. You are probably full of a religious spirit. Because I don't see any of you in here in glorified bodies. Sometimes those who have been saved the longest are the worst. We all know that's not us. We don't do that. <clears throat> the rabbis that were admired most in Jesus' day in the centuries before him taught always be repenting. They were so aware of their sin that they were always discussing it with the Lord. And they lived righteous lives because of it. You know, if you are always correcting your course, it's not a sign that you're off course. It's a sign that you're staying on course. Let's look at trade hindrances. 1 Corinthians, the first chapter, starting in the fourth verse. Say there when you were there. Have I succeeded in making you angry? Yeah, there's still time. We're going to do a wedding later today. That'll be a happy event. Nobody will get mad at the wedding. Well, I'm going to confess, there's one point in the sermon where it is possible during the wedding that someone will get, get mad, Curtis, but they'll need to. I mean, if they get mad, they need to get... You'll be happy the whole time. Not as happy as you'll be later, but you'll be happy the whole time. First Corinthians 1 and the fourth verse. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motive of men's heart. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. Now, brothers, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit so that you may learn from us the meaning of saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not take pride in one man over or against another. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, I'm in 4-1. <laughs> I meant to be in 1-4. Flipping to 1-4. It, it strangely did make perfect sense. This, uh, this will help also. Let's go with 4-1. That's okay. <laughs> The point here being is that the Corinthian church had already segmented. Some said, I follow Apollo. Some said, I follow Paul. As they moved on from there, Paul said they were completely defe defeated because they were already divided. This is what the enemy's trying to do when you start to keep a record of wrongs. I don't want to fellowship with that brother because we all know how he is. This is what begins to happen when we say, these are like those... <laughs> Not so much. I still love them, though. I mean, I'm just telling you this so you'll know how to pray. This is what happens in a congregation of any size when you prefer some over others. It's easy to do. Parents, do you say you love all your children the same? Don't we all say that? Yes. Do you spend more time with some of them than others? Yes. 
Do you relate to some easier than you do others? Have some given you unmitigated hell and others brought you praise? It's easy to do. I'd like to submit to you that those that you like to fellowship with the least might need your fellowship the most. That Jesus, he was interested in those that nobody else was interested in, as evidenced by the men who wrote the book, as evidenced by Paul saying a thing to the Corinthian church like, not many of you were noble. We might actually be offended if somebody said that. Good thing we're all from the same disease stuck. One of the greatest illusions is that one man has risen above another. The truth is, is your exaltation is your humiliation. But your humiliation is your exaltation. That's the truth. How about Colossians, the Indian uprising? Since I got lost in the book of Corinthians, I only found it yesterday. Corinthians, the third chapter and first verse. Colossians, yes, yes. Just wait, Curtis. It might not be the Carter wedding tonight. They're just, I might, I might pronounce y'all, you know, Sutherlands and Piros. Colossians, the third chapter in the first verse. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. And then he goes on to name all the things that belong to an earthly nature. To be reborn does not mean that we do not continually put to death that earthly nature. We carry it around with us all of the time. Are you ever disappointed in yourself to the extent that it's embarrassing to even say? My little dachshund was with me yesterday. Y'all, those of you who've been in church a while, you know I, uh, his, his name's Winston. My kids call him Weenie. You know, I love this little animal, mostly because he's so pathetic. He's got nothing going for him in life. He's half a dog tall. He's a dog and a half long. I mean, he's like he's put together out of spare parts. He stole the wall, uh, a Whataburger bag full of food. He ate it all and then got his head caught in the bag. And in the midst of a sin, had to run to me to be freed. I mean, you see Jesus everywhere if you look. But yesterday, yesterday I was working on a sewer system because who doesn't want to work on sewer systems, right? You're a pastor. What do you do all day? Come follow me around. And a couple pulled into the storage facility where I was doing this. And, um, you know, no rash judgments. But they're man and woman wearing wife beaters. <laughs> God bless this generation. We love our tattoos, right? Covered in tattoos. Weenie's wandering a little bit from his master. Apparently, he doesn't like to work on sewers either. And when they pulled in in their salvage truck, dragging construction material behind them, and they opened the door, two male pit bulls flop out. And I know we have a problem, but I'm in the center of uh, lots of obstacles, and I don't know where he is because he has strayed from my side. And then I hear it, the sounds of attack. just a dog, but I love him. He's certainly not innocent, but he is not aggressive or malicious. I kicked off my sandals and I ran as fast as I could to where I heard the sound. And the people seemed kind of excited like they thought it was funny. And one of the dogs had uh, Winston's hindquarters and the other had his entire head in its mouth. And they were just about to separate him. Charlie, I hesitate to say this in front of you. You're my elder and you've warned me about this many times. I reached for my gun. 
Not for the people. <laughs> the problem is, is I didn't have it. Y'all remember when I was on my way to Virginia and I had to get the little girly hammer to fix the, I mean, the hammer all of, you know, the sissy stick. Like, it was nearby. Winston survived the event. And I couldn't even speak to the people. I couldn't find a way. I knew that if I spoke, it was liable to not be the most edifying thing that I'd ever said. And they seemed to inherently know that they needed to leave too because they didn't say anything to me. We simply separated. As I was thinking about it, I got more upset about the life of a dog than the fact that they're killing millions of children every day. I remembered why we don't take pictures of animals on the mission field. People care more about the condition of the dogs in Africa than they do the children. I remembered in that moment that this is just an animal. And it's an animal that I care for, an animal God put in my service, but the world is in similar condition. It's being pulled apart at the seams. And the Christian church is fascinated with the fact they gained their independence and completely overrun in the second war. They're not living as free. And we're supposed to have the answer for the world around us. Do you want to be equipped by God? Then we're going to have to face the impressment of the enemy. We're going to have to face the hindrance to fellowship. We're going to have to face the Indian uprising. I mean, imagine that there was a Christian that was born again, given the Word of God, but allowed himself to be impressed into the devil's service, became divided from other Christians, and failed to subdue his own carnal desires, just like Israel failed to conquer and instead assimilated, and just like America that has failed to enforce its God-given sovereignty and become subject to nastiness all around us. What happens when we cease to be what we're called to be? What happens when our behavior is defined as something other than what we were born to be? Ironically, the War of 1812 defined America's psyche because after having gotten free, the question is, can you now walk in that freedom? When all turns against you, when you're outnumbered, when things are rising up from your own midst, Can you walk in your freedom or do you simply reduce it to I was free on that day? You know, I stopped asking people if they were Christians a long time ago. I say, when did you fall head over heels in love with Jesus? When they pause, I know. Because we think Christianity is an event that happened at some point. That was the first battle. It's when you declared, you made your declaration of independence. The real battle is what we've done every day thereafter. You're not going to face the British power, so to speak, just once in your life. You're going to face them many times in your life. You know, one of the central figures in America at the time was a man named James Madison. James Madison is considered the father of the Constitution because he wrote most of the Federalist Papers that later became the Constitution. You may not know it, but James Madison wrote all ten amendments known as the Bill of Rights. He was the president from 1809 to 1817, and don't hold this against him, but he had Clinton as the vice president. Obviously a different Clinton in a different time. He fixed it in the second term. He had someone else. Most interestingly about James Madison... It's not that he did all those things, but he is the smallest U.S. president in the history of the United States. His opponent said he was 5'2". He claimed he was 5'6". And somewhere in between probably lies the truth. But what is indisputable is he was only 100 pounds. I'm not going to do it. He's only 100 pounds. But he accomplished more than most men do in their life. 
Reminds me of Zechariah 4.6. He said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. It reminds me of David going out to face Goliath. God doesn't need our great stature. He gave you your independence. Now He wants you to trust Him to walk in that independence. To build a life that is a memorial stone for others. That others might look and go, if Ibrahim did it, then I can do it. If Doug did it, I can do it. I want to walk with God like Gabe's squared. <laughs> is your life empowering someone? Inspiring someone? Oh no, we are only unworthy servants. Aren't you inspired by the unworthy servants that went before us? In Acts 14, when people did not receive the gospel, Paul said, since you judge yourself unworthy of the kingdom of God, I'm going to turn to the Gentiles. I want you to be very careful about talking about what you're not worthy of. We already knew you weren't worthy. You're from the same disease stock I am. You don't have to explain it. But when you turn towards him, he makes you worthy to receive the inheritance. Receive it. Walk in it. Own it. You have more power than you realize. I think my favorite thing about the War of 1812, which incidentally was supposed to also correspond to Deuteronomy 18.12, is this old ship. This old ship is the oldest ship in the U.S. Navy today. It's called Old Ironsides. It was in the War of 1812, and it's the only ship still commissioned from that time. Granted, it's a symbolic gesture, a way of saying we're not part of the United Kingdom, but we still, every time uh, uh, the, the ship is without a captain, appointed another captain. It actually last sailed in 1997. This was just our way of letting the whole world know we still remember at a time when America had the smallest president in U.S. history, at a time there were only 7.5 million people, at a time we were outnumbered 15 to 1, we stood up to the largest imperial power in the world, and we won a second time. It defined the America can-do attitude. That old ship faced off with a British warship called the Guerre. The gear was known as a destroyer before that term was popular. Its cannons were so lethal that in any contest, it sank the opponents. The problem is that the old Ironsides was made of U.S. Southern Live Oak. U.S. Southern Live Oak weighs 75 pounds per cubic foot. You take my foot in three directions, and that size block of wood, 75 pounds. There's not been anything that dense since I was a teenager. <laughs> it was incorrigible, unable to be taught. And when that ship pulled alongside it and fired its cannons, you know what happened with the cannonballs? They bounced. The wood was so dense that the enemy's fire didn't even stick to it. It reminds me of put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand. This gospel is not a one-time experience. It is standing in the face of cannon fire and letting it bounce right off of your Holy Ghost chest. I think the neatest thing is that the legend surrounding the Ironsides made Americans feel invulnerable. Like... Just couldn't be beaten. Like a little Italian guy after watching the movie Rocky. You know what its real name was? It was not the Ironsides and became something else. It was called the U.S. Constitution 
And then they named it Old Ironsides because it could not be dented or deterred or defeated. Oh, how we need to hear these stories again. You know what Old Ironsides is in your life? It's the word and testimony of God. You could be stupid. You could be ugly. You could be poor. You could agree with the person calling you all of those things and still say, but I'm born again. And I'm walking in it. And suddenly none of the rest really matters. Yes, I'm bucktooth. Yes, I smell bad on a hot day. Yes, I'm bold. Yes, I'm all of those things. And watch me now. I'm born again. Perhaps the reason we don't feel that way is because we haven't walked that way. Perhaps the best we could do is say, yes, I one time made a decision a long time ago. But when you're born again, you ought to have confidence. There is a third thing from the second great war in America that is worth hearing. When you hear our national anthem, you associate it with the Revolutionary War, but it was not written during the Revolutionary War. It was written during the War of 1812. There was a battle to defend Baltimore, Maryland. Why anybody would fight for Baltimore, Maryland, I have no idea. Today, we've completely surrendered it to drug addicts. We've completely surrendered it to prostitutes. I think Acorn runs Baltimore, Maryland today. But there was a battle over it. And the brunt of the battle took place at a place called Fort McHenry. Moved with emotion after seeing the U.S. flag still standing in the morning, Sir Francis Scott Key wrote our national anthem. He was focused on the flag that stood for independence and was still standing for independence. Church, it's not enough to just point to the flag that once stood for independence. It's not enough to point to our one-time experience with the Lord. The reason that that has value to us is because it is still standing in our lives for still the same principles. I'm not speaking about patriotism here. I'm talking about real salvation. Yes, Christ died for you. But do you walk as he walked? Are you now a new creature growing towards him every day, aware of your imperfections, but laying them before him, saying, mighty God, make me holy? Not just back then, but every day. This is what sanctification is. And in the days when America was strong, it's what was taught from our pulpits. Not this greasy, gray, sloppy, agape, garbage confession of faith. Now we're obsessed with being rich. When we were the smallest, we beat the largest. There's truth here if you're able to hear it. Hebrews 12.2 says it this way, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider Him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. We look to the cross when we're born again. But every day that you are fighting your second great war, where do you look? Back to the same cross. It is the anthem of our life. I was saved. I'm being saved. And I will be saved. It's all phases of my life. In my spirit, I know that He's God. In my soul, I'm being convinced that He's God. And in my flesh, I will carry it out. I have been saved in here. There is a war going on in my mind, will, and emotions. And my flesh is dying. But during this time, what he placed in my spirit will invade my soul and force my body to slavery. At the resurrection, that battle will be over. But you don't get to participate in the resurrection if you didn't participate in this life. The same way that Americans are supposed to put their heart over their chest and stand when the national anthem comes and they're supposed to sing it and sing it and remember those who died for it. Every time we see a cross, it's not jewelry. Every time we see this book that's a witness to a murder, every time we're in fellowship, every time we take communion, we're not supposed to relive just the event of salvation. We're supposed to make commitment to walk in that salvation now. Some historians call the War of 1812 the War of Contradictions. It's kind of ironic. I told you that they were fighting over impressments, fighting over trade hindrance. Told you they were fighting over an Indian uprising. What I didn't tell you is that the English Parliament ended impressments two days before the war began. 
But there was no email. And the U.S. didn't know it. And the war had already begun. In other words, England was defeated before we started. But we didn't know the victory was ours. England had conceded before the battle began, but we didn't know it. The most famous battle of the war. How many of y'all from Louisiana in here? You ever been to Jackson Square? The most famous battle of the war was in the Battle of New Orleans where Andrew Jackson, who they called Old Hickory, fought and won. Of course, the peace treaty had already been signed before it and he didn't know it. The news hadn't arrived there. Say, Eric, why are we getting a history lesson today? I see his story everywhere, but I, I, I want to tell you why. The battle's already won. You just don't know it. You're engaged in warfare... And the battle has already been determined. The enemy has already quit. You just don't know it. Does not the Bible say that if we submit ourselves then to God, resist the devil, he will? We're told the outcome before we enter into the engagement. It's already happened. How dare we retreat, compromise? How dare we yield to an enemy that our king has already whipped six ways, literally from Sunday? Church, this is the time when we need to rouse ourselves because the world around us needs us. I want to end with two scriptures. The first is Galatians 5.1. Matthew, you could come here. Come see ya. We're going to get it in real Louisiana speak, buddy. We say, come see ya. No? We answer our own questions. It's funny. But I've been here long. I had anchor babies here. I'm, I'm a Texan. Galatians 5.1 is very to the point. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Come on, say that. It is for freedom that Christ has... Stand firm then. And do not let yourself be burdened by the yoke of slavery. Now that you have won your independence... There is a second great war. Don't let anything overcome you. The enemy's already defeated. You just don't know it yet. Galatians 5, 13. You, my brothers, were called to be free. Say, I'm called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Now that you have been set free, what are you going to do with your freedom? Rather serve one another in love. I'm going to tell you, if you were a thief, it's not enough to stop stealing. You now need to do something useful with your hands. I'm going to tell you, if you were a malicious gossip, it's not enough to stop. You now have to speak edifying words as if you were speaking the very words of God. I'm going to tell you that we have to run 180 degrees in the opposite direction from what defined our life. Why? Because we were born again and we're in the second great battle and we must win it. Say amen and stand to your feet.